episode 1198 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hello. I was surprised by how quickly I settle into season mode or regular season mode. There's just no baseball for months upon months. I don't even really watch spring training baseball much unless there's something really exciting happening. So I just go from cold turkey to suddenly there are 13 to 15 baseball games a day and I settle right back into that routine of checking the scores and checking the stats and seeing what's happening and turning on MLB TV in the background while I'm doing other stuff and hearing the same clips over and over and over and over again during this break in the action. Here's a popular clip from MLB.com. I hope that doesn't last all season or at least show more clips. There should be a lot of clips, a lot of baseball out there. So anyway, that's been the only negative. It's uh, it's nice to have baseball back and it's just very familiar. You get back into the swing of things very quickly. One of those popular clips, you know, one of the, there's a popular clip from MLB.com or whatever it is. And then it, it's a yep. Justin Verlander throwing his second no hitter yeah. in a Tiger's uniform. And he closes it out. And the announcer is like, and it's another no hitter for the Tiger horse. It's like, you probably shouldn't put two animal <laughs> names right in front of one another. But yeah. uh, Tiger horse made me, uh, made me think. But yeah, I, I know what you mean. It just feels really warm and comfortable. Mm-hmm. And the only real struggle I have when the season comes back is that, because all of a sudden there's baseball, I try to keep up with every single game at first. Yeah, just be like, what that. happened in this one? Oh, but what happened in that one? And then, <laughs> yeah. you know, come like May 4th or May 17th, it's just like, yeah, there there were 15 games today. I, I care about maybe yeah. two of them. <laughs> yeah, that's an unsustainable pace. You can't actually pay that close attention. But yeah. it is nice just when I'm doing something mindless, I can just put baseball on in the background or I can take a baseball nap. Just fall asleep on the couch with some baseball on. That's my favorite part. I don't really sit down and watch entire games all that often at this point because I'm not really rooting for any one team. And if I did that, I would never be able to follow the whole league because there's just too much baseball. So I tend to dip in and out usually, but I do enjoy just kind of setting and forgetting it as I just fall asleep on a Friday evening or something like that. That's that's my favorite part of baseball. Yeah, this is a, this is a lot of fun. It was fun to be able to make like make a point of coming home to just watch Joey Otani. There's got to be a lot of weekends yeah. where I'm just not around for the summer. Yeah. You know, it's this it's the summer you want to get out and do other things, but uh, yeah. it's just it's just pleasant. Everything feels interesting this early, which it's yeah. not. I know it's not because <laughs> again, in a few months there's going to be all the same stuff is going to be happening and we'll be like, "Oh, there's nothing to write about." But right now, just want to write about everything. Like, I don't know, Gabe Kapler. Yes, well, we'll be talking about him, I'm sure, and we'll be talking about Otani, but yeah, it's just going to be another grab bag episode, I think, because we're both still enthusiastic about every little thing that's (laughs) happening, and everything seems meaningful, and so I've got about 15 tabs open right now of things that I wanted to mention, so we're just going to do that again. So I I guess we can start with Otani, and I unfortunately was not able to come home and watch him, because I had an Easter thing going on, and family, and I was away from home, and internet-wise, it was not a great situation. So I didn't get to see it live, but of course I've seen the highlights. I was following live as it happened and I've looked at his stats and it turns out Shohei Otani pretty good at this pitching thing. I am uh, feeling good about my decision to stick with him as my rookie of the year pick, even after his disastrous spring. (laughs) So he pitched well. I mean, the line score wasn't anything amazing. He went six innings. He gave up three runs. He struck out six and walked one, gave up a few hits, gave up a homer. So he wasn't completely dominant, but the way that he got there was pretty impressive. Good stuff. Yeah, if you go by the rates, then he threw 68% strikes, which is great. And when opponents swung, they made contact only 62% of the time, which is great. Mm -hmm. And his fastball averaged 98 miles per hour, which is great. (laughs) Pretty good. He sustained that. So he... 
He had a very strong game. The home run he allowed to Matt Chapman was on a slider, but I didn't think it was that bad of a slider. I haven't written him up yet because I didn't want to write yesterday. I'll write mm-hmm. after this podcast. But what did strike me is that, you know, people will say, oh, Otani just made the one mistake that he paid for and it was the home run. Yeah, that's not how it works. He made a he made a good number of mistakes with sliders and splitters mm-hmm. that he just kind of left up. And, you know, yeah, the people A's. swung through them anyway. In yeah. some cases, yeah. Or swung onto them. And I think this is one of the things that happens when you throw a 100-mile-per-hour <laughs> fastball. You just right. get to get away with more of those mistakes. But it's, you know, yesterday, Otani could have allowed zero home runs, or he probably could have allowed three or four. And we would have seen the same pitches and thought, yep, that makes sense. But yeah. clearly, quality of stuff, good. Swing and miss capability, good. The uh, the slider has that, like, clubbery kind of movement, which I'll mm-hmm. probably include in my post or something. But it's just he's got three real good-looking pitches, and then there was a curveball that he showed three times. It was always a first pitch, kept it down. I don't know if it's any good, but the fact that he mm-hmm. didn't throw it very often suggests no. But, you know, he's <laughs> he's got too many pitches to you, so you can only use so many at once. Yeah, and his splitter, he threw 24 splitters and got 10 swinging strikes. <laughs> that's pretty. That's a pretty high percentage. That's impressive. And his fastball is really fast. It doesn't have, like, a high spin rate. It doesn't move a whole lot but it's so fast it's just like you know in the 99th percentile velocity wise just averaging 98 topping out at 100 when you throw that hard even if it's fairly flat like I don't know if it's like a Nathan Nivaldi fastball kind of thing hopefully it's better than that but because he has such great breaking balls and just secondary stuff it's kind of okay because he can throw 100 with his fastball and might not get that many swinging strikes on that but it sets up the slider and it sets up the splitter and he gets lots of strikes and swinging strikes on those too so it's you know he wasn't going after a bad lineup I mean Garrett Cole was really good too he got 21 swinging strikes in his start which I think maybe was a career high and that wouldn't be surprising if he's just better with the Astros than he was before but that was against the Tigers I'm gonna disqualify any results against the Tigers oh, as Rangers. being the best ever oh was it Rangers okay yeah. well Rangers are pretty bad too so <laughs> he looked good I, I was looking at his pitch mix and it didn't seem dramatically different to me I, I don't know I was looking at to see if he just threw a lot fewer four seamers or something because that was supposed to be the whole thing he'd get away from the pirates he'd be throwing more breaking balls and he threw 53 four seamers and 102 pitches which is not unusual for him so I don't know if it was a different pitch mix anyway he got lots of swing strikes Otani got lots of swing strikes I don't think we have to worry about Shohei Otani at least as a pitcher based on that start yeah and between 2016 and 2017 Garrett Cole chopped a bunch of fastballs off his rate anyway so if he Uh does that again that won't be too surprising but uh, there's just the confirmation bias of oh we went to the Astros and I expect them them to do this one thing so therefore let's make sure he does that one thing yeah it is kind of weird though because so Garrett Cole he did if we're going to use one start as as our sample here he (laughs) did throw he did lower his his fastball rate from last year's average by eight percentage points which is big that's Mm -hmm. a big drop but it's also weird because you would think okay we just saw one start what an interesting story but it's almost boring because that story was written months before Cole right. ever made his Astros debut, so it's already yeah. over. And I think he kind of did it down the stretch, too, last year, right? Like, if you look at the full season rates, maybe it looks like he was throwing a lot of fastballs, but he was really effective down the stretch, and I thought I remembered reading or seeing that that transformation had maybe begun down the stretch and that maybe that was what made him more appealing than he would have been based on his full season numbers. Is that true? Let's find out. Yeah. Eh, kind of. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yep. I'll take kind of. That's, that's yeah. what I got. As okay. far as Otani, just looking at his fastball, the movement on his fastball, you're right, it's not a high spin fastball. It's not a low spin fastball. It's just sort of one of those in-betweeners, which mm-hmm. in some sense is not where you want to be, but in the other sense, he was throwing 100 miles per hour, so it's fine. But in yeah. terms of the uh, the horizontal and vertical movement, not super far away from Nathan Yovaldi. <laughs> in terms of the those movements, uh, Carlos Martinez throws a similar four-seamer uh, Luis Severino throws a somewhat similar four-seamer, a little more rise to it. Luis Castillo of the Reds, just going over some names here. So Otani doesn't seem to have that classic rising swing and miss kind of fastball, but he does have that classic, it's literally 100 miles per hour fastball. Mm-hmm. So he'll yeah. probably <laughs> be able to use it. But it is it is interesting that he threw, like, a, arguably... I don't know. We'll see how the data plays out, but maybe the hardest average fastball that any starting pitcher will throw this season. Mm -hmm. And he only threw 39 of them out of 92 pitches, which is 
not even 50%. So mm-hmm. there is an awareness there that, oh, he's not pitching for the Pirates, you know? He's not right. just going out there being like, establish this. He threw 26 sliders and 24 splitters and, and three curveballs. So lots of other stuff. And, uh, yep, good luck. Mm-hmm. Okay. A couple other individual highlights I wanted to mention. Ichiro had a home run robbery. I think it's legitimate. I think we can say this was definitely a home run robbery because sometimes you get plays that are kind of called home run robberies, but eh, probably the ball would have been off the top of the wall or something, or it's tough to see if it would have been going out. I think in this case, it would have. Jose Ramirez was hitting, James Paxton was pitching, and Ichiro was playing left, and he got up all the way on the wall, and I think he brought that ball back. So that was a nice moment. I don't know. I'm sure you've watched more Mariners baseball than I have so far. I don't know if he's getting like standing ovation type treatments every time he does anything, but that was one moment where he legitimately deserved it because that was a, a great vintage Ichiro play. And he followed it shortly thereafter with an infield single, so just kind of <laughs> channeling old classic Ichiro, which is all anyone really wants to see yeah. from him right now. Actually, yeah. I shouldn't say that's all anyone really wants. Classic Ichiro is an MVP candidate, so yeah, people right. would love to see classic <laughs> Ichiro, but there's two versions of classic Ichiro. There's 15 years ago and then there's like seven years ago and mm-hmm. but yeah he's still he's still getting the uh the treatment and you know first series why not just sure yeah and uh yeah. while Ichiro was channeling Ichiro mm-hmm. D Gordon channeled Ken Griffey Jr. which was a <laughs> uh, uh, a fun little glimpse uh Gordon hit a home run on Sunday and he did the Griffey strut out of the <laughs> box and I don't know what it's like to be a hitter who's not strong but, like, D. Gordon has hit home runs before. He's hit, I think, 11 or 12 of them, something like that. I should probably look it up because with such a small number, it's worthwhile <laughs> to be precise. But yeah. he's hit some home runs. He hit the dramatic one after uh, the Marlins resumed playing after Jose Fernandez passed away and everybody cried and it was wonderful. But mm-hmm. D. Gordon hit a no-doubter that D. Gordon was so sure that he hit a home run that he was comfortable strutting immediately. <laughs> D. Gordon... How does D. Gordon know what home run contact feels like <laughs> automatically? Yeah. yeah, you're right. You'd think just it's a small sample, so you'd think you'd hedge your bets a little bit. But yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I guess a home run when you hit it on the sweet spot and it doesn't feel like you hit it at all, I guess that feels the same even for D. Gordon. Maybe he's able to tell, but I agree. If I had that few home runs in my career, I would probably just err on the side of caution no matter how well I, I felt like I hit it. There so. was a back in the old hit tracker online days. I know it yeah. still exists, but when it was useful, uh, I remember it doesn't evidently exist. Oh, it doesn't? No, I think oh. it seems to be gone. Well, R.I.P. Hit tracker online. We miss you, Greg Grubarczyk. Yeah. Enjoy yeah. your baseball employment. Anyway, yes. I remember searching around and finding. So for anyone who never used hit tracker online, it was like home run data pre Statcast. So mm-hmm. he was like estimated exit velocity and angle and distance and all that stuff and. Michael Bourne doesn't really play anymore as far as I know, but he was never strong. He was never a, a great hitter. He was a, you know, a patience and slap and speed kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And so you would look up his home runs and it would be like 370 feet, 380 feet. And there was one home run he hit in Houston and it was like 464 feet. Just That was it. <laughs> and I looked at it and I thought, how did that happen? Because you'd think <laughs> when you have thousands of plate appearances of Major League experience, then you kind of you have data that settles around your personal ceiling. But he had mm-hmm. this one that stood out by like 50 feet over his next farthest home run. And this is not at altitude. It wasn't a windy day. It's just he made absolutely perfect contact. And like the vid- it was such an old home run, the video couldn't load. It was like trying to buff a real player or some nonsense. <laughs> yeah. But like I can't imagine how he felt when he made that contact. He I hope he didn't sprint out of the box because that was his one opportunity to just pimp it. Yeah, right. So I also wanted to mention, did you see Kevin Pillar stealing every base in uh, in one inning? He is the first Blue Jay to record three stolen bases in the same inning. It was pretty impressive. It was in the eighth inning off Dylan Batances, and he stole second. He stole third. Then he stole home, and he just totally got in his head, I guess, and he started just dashing down the baseline as Batantis was kind of, you know, in mid-delivery, and Batantis was so unnerved by this, seemingly, that he just yanked a pitch and threw it all the way to the backstop, so there wasn't even, like, an exciting play at the plate or anything, but it was exciting just that that happened. I think the steal of home is it's still one of the most exciting plays in baseball, and it doesn't happen all that often for good reasons, but when it does happen, and when it works, 
works. There are a few things I enjoy seeing more than that. Yeah, that one's a lot of fun. Now, I don't know. I, you, you mean to tell me that Dellen Batansis allows distractions to get into his head while I have... Uh, he's, uh, so Batansis is already... It's 2018. Dellen Batansis has pitched in two games. He's yeah. already allowed four steals and a caught steal. So people have tried to run on him five times. <laughs> two years ago, three years ago, I don't know what to say now. Runners went 21 for 21, stealing bases against Dellen Batansis. So clearly mm-hmm. there's a little bit of a, a vulnerability here. And many relievers, many right-handed relievers, I should say, are just bad at protecting is just one of those things that you think you don't have to be good at as a reliever they mm-hmm. just go out there and they try to strike everyone out and if you strike everyone out you don't have to worry about the running game but if you're Dylan Batansis you walk a lot of guys people find their way on base and then they yeah. can they can run so he's he's a very very talented pitcher who is you can stand to have some more polish around the edges mm-hmm by the way, remember how we were talking on our last podcast about how Mike Trout had maybe the worst game of his career <laughs> <laughs> the first time ever he had had six or more plate appearances and not reached base? Yep. And he was like the lowest war, according to Fangrass. He was sub-replacement level. Now he has a 151 OPS plus <laughs> after after three more games, <laughs> 151. He is now hitting 300 and slugging 600, <laughs> even despite one of his four games being the worst of his career. So he, he homered in his second game, went one for four. Then he went two for, no, three for five with two doubles, and then two for five also with another double in the, th- in the fourth game. And so, yeah, Mike Trout, I mean, we knew it was uh, only a matter of time till his numbers looked like Mike Trout's again, but I would have taken the over on three more games as the amount of time that it took, and nope, <laughs> Mike Trout. So. I'm still looking up at Matt Davidson in first place with a WRC Plus of 568. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch Haneker, though, is hot on his heels at 508. Adam Eaton at 388 is a distant third. But bringing up the rear in Major League Baseball, Ryan Healy, Jose Ramirez, Jose Peraza, and Devin Longoria, all of them hitless, all of them with WRC plus marks of negative 100. I think that's the that has to be the minimum. I think it's just kind of capped there for mm-hmm. whatever reason. But Chris Davis, Jonathan Scope. Also at the bottom, negative 85 and negative 74. This is, I like early season numbers. So ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we also had our first unwritten rules controversy of the season. And as usual, it was silly and baseless, but we should probably talk about it because of how silly and baseless it was. And because it is related to something we talked about in our last episode about bunting against the shift and whether players should do it. So it happened in a Twins-Orioles games, Orioles off to a rough start this season, probably will have a rough rest of the season as well, but this was in the midst of getting shut out by Jose Barrios, who pitched a, a complete game, and this was, I don't know, was this on Sunday? Who who knows? Who cares? But that's usually your line, but this is <laughs> Chance Cisco rookie for the Orioles, perhaps one of the few bright spots of the season for them. He bunted for a hit against the shift in the ninth inning against the Twins with the Twins up 7 nothing, and it worked. He got on base. The Orioles eventually loaded the bases, but Brios got out of it no problem. Anyway, after the game, Twins second baseman Brian Dozier says... Quote, I could have said something, but they have tremendous veteran leadership over there with Chris Davis, Adam Jones, and those guys. I'm sure they'll address it and move forward. He's upset about him bunting for a hit against the shift with Barrios, I guess, working on a shutout. It wasn't even a no-hitter or anything because Cisco had gotten a hit himself earlier in the game. So it was a complete game, one hitter, and the Twins are mad, and Barrios himself said... I don't care if he's bunting. I just know it's not good for baseball in that situation. That's it. (laughs) Bad for baseball to butt for a hit. And Cisco said, just trying to mess with the timing of the game. He was kind of going through the lineup, just trying to do what I can to get on base. They were playing the shift right there, so they kind of gave it to me. If they're going to shift, I have to take it right there in that spot. We got bases loaded right after that. We're a couple home runs away from tying the game. Bases loaded. Jones or Scope hits a home run right there. We're a couple runs from being back in the game. So... 
This is, I mean, it's a variant of the typical case like this where if someone's working on a no-hitter or something, then obviously guys are mad when someone breaks up that personal milestone. And, you know, we can talk about that being silly because, hey, it's a baseball game and you're trying to win and it's not, you're not really under any obligation to let the other guy get his moment if you want to win the game instead. But this is even sillier because there was no no-hitter. It's a, a one-hit shutout. I mean, it's a great game, but it's not going to be a popular clip on MLB.com that we're <laughs> going to be watching between innings on MLB TV for the next five years. So I, I just I don't get it. Plus, they're shifting. So if they're shifting, they're trying to get him out. They're not just like conceding the game. So why should he concede that plate appearance? I don't get it. I have absolutely no idea what... <laughs> I don't even have anything to add to what you said because they're, they're shifting and he just went. When I first saw the the tweets going around, I didn't watch this live. Why would I be watching that game? But when I saw the tweets going around, I thought, oh, the Orioles are upset because the Twins bunted for a hit when they were up 7 nothing. No, mm-hmm. it was the opposite. A team <laughs> yeah. that was losing was trying to get a base runner so that they would not be losing the baseball game. But the right. way that... It's not just that one player was upset. I would get, like, if you're Barrios, I get it. Maybe you're a little annoyed because who likes to give up a bunt single? It's cheap or something. Mm-hmm. But for, like, the, the uniformity and the unanimity of the response from the twin side suggests that this really is something that just, like, pissed them all off. But I mm-hmm. can't imagine why. <laughs> no. Neither, <laughs> To, to expect though, no, Adam Jones is such a great leader over there. Hill talks some sense into him. What is that? Is this? Are they gaslighting the Orioles about this? Like Adam Jones is going to tell Chance Cisco, "Hey, don't do that anymore." And then in that way, it'll be like a little advantage that the Twins get the next time because they're like, "Now the Orioles aren't going to bunt for that single." Is this some sort of long con? It's just the stu- I know there's a lot of stupid unwritten rules, but this one doesn't hold up to any. Any kind of stretch of logic, not even baseball logic. No. This is just straight up stupid. Uh, the one hit shutout is great, but you have to earn it. I'm not mm-hmm. even opposed to bunts with no hitters, but at least that is an established unwritten rule. This right. one is not. This is just no. stupid. <laughs> this is, yeah, I don't get it. And I mean, maybe teams don't think of shifting as like, you know, going above and beyond taking extraordinary measures to try to get a guy out. It's so routine. Now you're just doing it as a matter of course. So maybe it just feels like regular baseball. And like you're not going the extra mile to get that out. But you are you're repositioning yourself to try to get an out against that guy. I I'd actually be curious if like teams generally stop shifting is there like a unwritten rule of shifting in most cases is there a mercy rule is it you're ahead by a certain number of runs this late in the game you just don't shift I don't know I haven't noticed that being the case not that I necessarily would but wasn't the case here so if you're gonna press that advantage then you have to be okay with the other team trying to get an advantage too so I don't get it I guess it's just a rookie so you feel like you can walk all over him because you're the veteran but I just don't understand how you could be upset about this so this is very silly and uh i don't think chase cisco did anything wrong here and certainly should not feel abashed or bush league in any way i hope that whenever they shift him in the future he bunts every single time yeah yeah so uh there's actually i just found a, a brady anderson quote about this brady anderson is the vp of baseball operations for the orioles former player himself obviously so he says What is the unwritten rule he seems to be referring to? That if a team is winning by several runs, they can continue to employ their shift, taking certain hits away from the batter. But out of respect for the game, the opponent must continue to hit the ball where they position their defense until the score is a little closer. Is that how it works? Is he the arbiter of how the game should be played? Chance's age is irrelevant, and although we do have a veteran presence here, that type of advice was not needed because what he did was correct, which was to reach base any way possible. So, yeah. Eh, cosine. All right. So what else here? I guess I'm just uh, working through our our non-Gabe Kapler topics before we get to Gabe Kapler, but I guess we are approaching the time when we have to talk about Gabe Kapler. I got one for you. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. So looking at using the Fangraph splits leaderboard, 
Last season, I'm, there's a, a feature on the Splits leaderboard. I'm looking at the team level, batted balls. You can look at the whole season. You can mm-hmm. break it down by month, or you can break it down by week. There's also an option to break it down by game. I don't know what that means. I didn't want to press the button. might make my computer explode. Last <laughs> season, the week in, uh, in baseball with the lowest league ground ball rate happened in the middle of August. And there's a ground ball rate of 42.3%. That was the lowest mm-hmm. week last year. The overall season average was 44.2% ground balls this season we're through four days of baseball 40.4 percent ground ball uh-huh. dramatic drop it also shows up in the league average launch angles you see on baseball savant we're up like more than two degrees mm-hmm. and so on the one hand i know it's absolutely ridiculous to be talking about this after four days of baseball and certain games have already been postponed and so clearly we need more data but i don't think we need a lot more data to be able to say something is changing here because mm-hmm. we, you and I both identified this happening in spring training. It also right. just makes sense based on the whole broader conversation we've been having for a few years. And mm-hmm. as noted, the lowest week last season was 42.3%. It was very consistently around 44% because you get a lot of batted balls over the course of a week in baseball. Mm-hmm. So by like the end of this coming week, we should have a pretty good idea of where this is going to be. And it sure does look like it's going to be lower by a yeah. substantial amount. Yeah, which, right, I I mean, I guess it makes sense. I mean, how many stories have we seen about swing changers and guys who are trying to raise their launch angles and get the ball in the air more often this spring? It seems like every team has a few of these guys, so... If that's true, if they're all doing what they say they're doing and it's working, then it would be impossible not to have some change in launch angle. It, it would be weird. I, I think over the last couple of years, people have been skeptical about launch angles and the airball revolution and all that because we were hearing this, but the league-wide numbers hadn't changed that much. Like, you know, it's like a degree it went up or something last year. But as some people have shown, including you, If you kind of drill down and look, you know, break down the StatCast data into the certain ideal launch angles, like the home run launch angles, if you just look between, you know, X degrees and Y degrees and balls hit this hard and that hard, you do see more and more batted balls being in those boxes, in those buckets over the last couple of years. So it has been happening. There has been evidence that it's happening, but maybe now it's accelerating to the degree that we can see it in just your, you know, kind of league average overall launch angle number which is not that sensitive to this type of change yeah and related to that maybe uh last season there's also the rate of pop-ups per fly ball that's something that fangraphs has checked and last season the highest week was in the middle of september there was an infield fly ball rate of 10.6 percent that was the highest for any week so for this year 12.3% through Uh four games. So as you would expect, if you are trying to swing up and hit balls in the air, you're going to hit more bad balls in the air. That would lead to more pop-ups. And unsurprisingly, the league average batting average on balls in play is at 280, down from the normal mark around 300. So it's only four days, but also these are things that would stabilize pretty quick. So I will race Ben to writing this up (laughs) later this week. Uh Yeah, I mean, I guess team's fifth starters still haven't started in some cases, right? The worst starters probably haven't or, you know, they're getting skipped at this point in the season. So it's a little too early to draw any very firm conclusions, but not that early. And yeah, we don't even know for sure that this will make hitters better or increase scoring. Like in spring training, even though home runs were up a ton and it seemed like, you know, there were more fly balls or fewer grounders, scoring was the same as it had been last year. So that could be the case. I don't know. Like the home run rate isn't up this season so far. Again, tiny sample, but there have been some examples of guys, you know, there's been almost like a a backlash to the launch angle movement where you have some guys saying, you know, I've taken it too far. Like uh, Matt Carpenter, for instance, is one who was quoted this spring as saying, you know, he muscled up and he was trying to hit every ball over the fence and it worked really well for him at first. Like, you know, he went from... 11 homers and 8 homers to 28 homers in 2015 just like trying to hit the ball harder and was just a a better hitter overall really but then last year for instance he 
hit 23 homers, but he only batted 241, and his OPS plus was down to 120 from the mid-130s, and he was saying, at least, that he has raised his launch angle too much, and he had raised it, I think, with each subsequent season, and he was saying, like, he fell in love with the homer, and he was seeing everyone hit homers, and he was trying to raise his launch angle and become this home run hitter, and that's not really the type of guy he is. He gets on base, he works pitchers, etc., etc., so it's possible that you can take it too far, and I think Mark Trumbo is another guy who said something similar, like in 2016, he was kind of lumped into the launch angle revolution, but then he said after his struggles last year that he was like paying too much attention to that and it was in his head or, you know, maybe Ryan Schimpf, who's like, you know, the ultimate <laughs> extreme fly ball rate guy and just hit so many fly balls that he ended up back in the minors, at least for a while. So you can possibly take it too far, but I don't know that the league as a whole has yet. I'm sure there is still plenty of room for a lot of guys to improve in this area. Yep. So is it time to, are we going to do it? Are we going to Kapler? <laughs> I guess we should do the Kapler. Well, first, let me ask you to <laughs> rate this fun fact. I know you probably saw this. It was going around on Sunday. I don't know who the original person who came up with it. So apologies to that person, but it was tweeted. It was mentioned on broadcast. So there have been more pitchers used in 2018 than in 1968. This was a a popular fun fact, and, you know, that's through, I guess it was three-plus games of the 2018 seasons. More pitchers used than there were in the entire 1968 season, which sounds like a very fun fact. And, you know, Sam used to say all fun facts lie, which is true. There's some kind of deception going on there usually, and I think that's the case here too, right, because... You know, in 1968, there were, of course, only 20 teams, so two-thirds as many teams as there are today. It was the year of the pitcher, so no one was scoring, so pitchers were going deep into games, and, you know, but, of course, pitcher usage has changed dramatically, and guys would finish their starts often in those days, and bullpens were a fraction of the size of what they are now. So is it a fun fact, or when you dig down on the reasons why it's true, is it not as fun? I don't like a fun fact where you are considering a league environment where there were two-thirds as many teams. Yeah. I think it's too deceptive for me. So I would rate it a two, two out of ten. Yeah. Yeah, of course, you know, it's a full season of 162 games back then, and we're through three-plus at the, at the time that this was making the rounds. So even though there were fewer teams, there's many, many fewer games in the 2018 sample. So... I kind of, I I did a little double take. I was taken aback by it when I first heard it and before I started thinking about it more. But obviously, pitcher usage has dramatically changed and reliever usage has dramatically changed. And speaking of that, I guess that's a pretty good segue into our pal Gabe Kapler, who is driving that change these days. So we talked about him in our last podcast because he was already a story just based on the Phillies' first game and him taking out Aaron Nola after 68 pitches and then the bullpen blew it. And so, of course, he was blamed for having too quick a hook. And since then, he has kind of doubled down on controversy, not intentionally, just, you know, I think in part because kind of he has a target on his back, but also because he is managing differently from anyone else at this point. So it was not just the quick hook of Nola, but then a quick hook of everyone else, right? So he has used, gosh, how many, 21 pitchers in the first three games of the season. The Phillies were off on Sunday, so no manager has ever done that. So that's a lot. He used Pedro Florimon in one of those games, position player. I think I saw that that was the earliest any position player has ever been used as a pitcher in a season. And then, of course, there was the, I guess, justified controversy where he made a pitching change despite not having a pitcher warming up (laughs) and uh, brought Hobie Milner into the game who had not thrown any warm-up pitches. The stories kind of conflicted. Kapler said he had been warming up, and Milner said he had not. I guess he had been maybe lightly tossing very briefly with the bullpen catcher, but he didn't know he was coming into the game, and so... Then Braves manager Brian Snitker said that he wasn't allowed any warm-up pitches or he should just have to, you know, throw right away. And the umpire said, I'm not going to get anyone hurt, so I'm going to give him three or five warm-up pitches instead of eight. So 
it was weird and you know Kapler said it was miscommunication and he took responsibility but you know that's not the kind of thing that we see ever happen in baseball I mean occasionally like the bullpen phone is broken and then there's some kind of miscommunication or non-communication because baseball is still using bullpen phones hardwired in 2018 but this was weird and so after the game Kapler also, while taking responsibility for this, also said that the Phillies would make the playoffs this year, which, you know, oh, maybe no. maybe that was not the best time to uh, double down and, and say that. But uh, he, he did, I don't know if you want to say he guaranteed playoffs, but he, he said, I'm remaining 100% positive. I believe in this club. I believe in the men in that clubhouse. I believe in our coaching staff. And there's no chance I'm going to let three games, two of them tougher, derail what we're trying to accomplish here which is to get to the postseason in 2018 which i believe we will do so it was uh not the strongest start for the kapler era but maybe we can talk about how much of this is being unconventional and how much of it is being incompetent okay so there have been three major things right there's nola there was not starting odubel herrera on opening day Mm-hmm. And there was uh, there was the bullpen mismanagement, miscommunication yeah. in Game 3. Is that basically the three big three yeah. things? Yeah, and just, you know, kind of the frantic bullpen use in general, just using yeah. tons and tons of pitchers. Well, now, yeah. like, granted, Nick Pavetta was not very good. Vince Velasquez was not very good nor efficient. So you kind of had to get to the bullpen early in some of those games. Anyway, Phillies don't mm-hmm. really have starters they can trust. They're waiting on Jake Arrieta to give them some stability. So with the Nola thing, I would say that was definitely weird to see him out after 68 pitches, but I would not, in terms of, like, I, I don't know, my fury rating, I would give that one, like, a <laughs> 3 out of 10. I don't really care. It's early. It made sense. Mm-hmm. Third time through the order. Freddie Freeman coming up. Not concerned. Not starting Odubel Herrera on opening day. I get it if you're trying to optimize, maybe, uh, but Herrera's good. And I I appreciate the symbolism of starting someone on opening day, and Herrera's been there since the low point. I would have liked to start him, but in terms of Fury, again, eh, 3 out of 10. Maybe Mm -hmm. 4 if you're really into the, the symbol of starting on opening day. But the Hobie Milner not warming up situation, that's a, I mean, for regular season at this point, that's a eight and a half out of 10. That's just, that is, I don't, I understand there's room for miscommunication and maybe something did go wrong. But what went wrong is that Gabe Kapler brought in a reliever who wasn't warm and uh, the league had to, had to issue a statement in defense of the umpire saying, we actually didn't have a rule for this. This is too incompetent for us to have covered. (laughs) So the umpire did well under the circumstances. And it's, you know, it's a shame that the the Braves had their manager ejected, but no one knew what to do. This was so stupid. This is just like, who would ever dream to bring in a reliever who didn't know, like, Hobie Miller might as well have been taking a nap, and then Gabe Kapler was like, you, go, come, it's, <laughs> right. it's your turn. Yeah. This, is a, this is a video game, and I can use you when you're cold. But, <laughs> right. yeah, I don't think I've ever seen this. It certainly doesn't feel like I've ever seen this. It's really dumb to try to do that. And I understand from the umpire's uh, standpoint, you got to let Milner warm up a little bit. And in a sense, this was so dumb, it's like an advantage to the Phillies because yeah. Milner still got to throw some warm-up pitches. But yeah, this was <laughs> this one was bad, even if it's in the larger scheme of things pretty insignificant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, clearly he's going to be unconventional. He's going to do things that other managers are unwilling or afraid or just you know don't think are the right things to do. And so in some cases, he's going to get the backlash from the old school person who just thinks that different equals bad. And so that's unfair. And he's going to have to weather some of that stuff. And that's okay. I mean, we saw the same thing with the Astros a few years ago, right? Everyone was complaining, oh, these, you know, unnamed inside baseball people whispering about how they're treating their players like robots and, you know, the occasional player saying something along those lines too. Well, you know, they were quickly good again and they won the World Series and now no one questions what the Astros do for the most part. So, you know, I think Jeff Luno even said at some point, like, if you're the first to do something, you're going to get some criticism for that. So Kapler has to be prepared for that sort of thing. And, you know, if it's just like using a lot of relievers, I mean, 
I don't know, maybe he's smart to do that or or using a position player. Like, you know, we've talked in the past on this podcast, I don't know if it was you with you or with Sam, but we've talked about how probably, you know, really in theory, position players should be used even more to pitch in games just because there are so many games that are just out of hand and you have essentially no chance to win the game and you might as well just bring the position player in. But it doesn't happen because you're kind of throwing the white flag and there's this stigma against that. So We talked at some point about how, you know, maybe one team will start doing this more often and maybe it's smart. So that's the kind of case where maybe Kepler will get criticized for that, but maybe it's the right move. Maybe it helps the Phillies in the long run. So good for him. But yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunate that this bullpen thing happened because now it kind of conflates the strategic elements and just the basic preparedness, which are two different things really or they could be two different things but you know it seems like communication has been an issue here not just in the Hobie Milner case but also in explaining to his players what he's doing and why he's doing it and then getting his story straight with the players when talking to the press and that is a problem so the actual on-field moves you know aside from Milner maybe fine maybe smart who knows but the other stuff does seem as if it needs some work at this point still. Yeah, and you figure so okay. On the one hand, you you can look at this and say, oh, Gabe Kapler's first series, it's the the team has reason to question his skills, but you know it's not his first series. He had all of spring training to manage. It's not this yep. isn't for the players like uh, Kapler's first impression. The first impression already happened, but you do mm-hmm. you do figure that the initial impressions are going to last a long time. That's just the way that humans are wired, and so if the players on the team don't trust Kapler's basic competence to yeah. be a manager, that's going to take a long time to forget and smooth over. So look, I, it's not like Gabe Kapler is about to be fired or anything. Nothing is going to happen anytime soon. But very obviously, there is a voracious appetite for Kapler criticism. And right. he is going to be under the microscope. He was always going to be under the microscope. But now he's made things worse for himself. So he could really stand to have just like a an easy series coming up against whoever the Phillies yeah. play. And I don't know if the Phillies are going to have such a thing as an easy series all season long, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I hope it doesn't snowball just, yeah. I mean, we've talked about Gabe Kepler in both of our first two podcasts of this regular season. I'm sure that we'll be doing regular Gabe Kepler updates on this podcast, but yeah, I hope, you know, coming as this did in the first series of the season i hope it just doesn't sort of cement the narrative that gabe kepler is weird and he's different and he's you know not going to be a good baseball manager just because he talks differently or behaves differently i mean you know i think there have been a lot of people who've just kind of been on the gabe kepler watch since the day he was hired right and you know people were criticizing the hiring even when we got the news so you know i hope I mean, he's different. I think it's not bad to be different. I think in some ways, maybe he could potentially push baseball forward. But in other ways, he could potentially send it backward. Because if this fails spectacularly in some way, then, you know, it's going to be everyone painting with a broad brush and saying that you can't manage with the numbers or whatever, because this is what happens. And I mean, Gabe Kapler is a former big leaguer. He has worked for front offices. He's worked in player development. He has been a minor league manager in the past. He is not like the wonky stat head who doesn't know how the game works and can't talk to players or anything like that. I mean, he may not talk to them like most managers talk to them, but he he's at home in clubhouses. He's spent plenty of time in them. So I hope it doesn't become the sort of situation where you know, it just flames out in such a notable way that you don't get to see someone else pushing the envelope for years to come because it's, you know, we don't want another Gabe Kapler on our hands. Yeah, my sense is that Kapler does have the full support of the Phillies organization. No one, like, there's there's media coverage and then there's team evaluation. And from what mm-hmm. I've heard so far, the Phillies really aren't that concerned at all. Now, that was granted before the homie milner situation so i don't (laughs) i don't quite know what you do there but that seems like it should be a pretty fundamental thing to take care of and not in so much in kapler's defense but just as further evidence that people love to rip on first-time managers aaron boone has gotten some new york media criticism because tommy canley and david robertson allowed home runs which doesn't really seem like aaron boone's fault but i don't know i haven't bothered to read the articles because i can't emphasize enough that i don't care but tommy (laughs) canley allowed a two-run homer to justin smoke and then david robertson allowed a grand slam to Justin Smoke, and then the yep. Blue Jays 
beat the Yankees. Seems like Aaron Boone mm-hmm. did what he was supposed to do, but I guess he did what Josh Donaldson was intentionally walked, which look, I kind of get it. But if you look at David Robertson, he's like a lot better against left-handed hitters than right-handed hitters. Mm-hmm. Justin Smoke was going to come up and bat lefty against him. And Justin Smoke has been better against left-handed pitchers than right-handed pitchers. So mm-hmm. it seems fine. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's one of those situations where you could just tell that the team has better information than the people criticizing the team. Like, you know, people were citing very small sample stats, like, you know, columnists criticizing Boone were talking about the matchup stats or talking about what happened in this one series. And sure, Donaldson has something going on with his shoulder that is hurting him in the field. And so maybe he's compromised at the plate in some way. I don't know. I know I saw him double at some point. But I think, you know, and then you hear Boone say like, well, we, you know, this was the matchup we liked and we just like the way that Robertson's breaking ball works against smoke and it didn't work out this time. But, you know, you just know that they have like advanced projections that were drawn up before this series and take into account pitchers like Robertson facing hitters like Smoke and it's not just based on some tiny sample of their head-to-head matchup or what happened in the series so teams managers often have better information about that stuff than the people who are criticizing them and so you know the intentional walk itself is not a great strategy in most cases but in this one I think it was fairly defensible and it was just a bullpen blow up and no one was expecting the Yankees to have a lot of bullpen blow ups this year and they've already had a couple so there's a a backlash to that but yeah David Robertson's career his entire major league career he's allowed a WOBA of 298 to righties and a 241 to lefties 241 Mm -hmm. that's like there's a lot of reverse splits that you don't really believe in but this one this one is established david robertson very good against lefties not very good against justin smoke on Mm -hmm. sunday uh there Mm -hmm. was another fun fact do you have anything else to say about first time managers no probably not all right well so you can uh rate this fun fact for me because this was going around so actually i guess the giants generated a couple of fun facts because the first two games of the season we didn't really talk about this but the giants beat the dodgers one nothing on joe panic solo home runs first time that's ever happened that's a, a neat fun fact even though it's also just weird but there's been a lot of baseball but the giants are two and two and uh they're two and two against the dodgers they played a four game series and the giants scored two runs Total of (laughs) two runs they scored. It's the fewest runs a team has ever scored in its first four games of the season. How is that (laughs) as a fun fact? Pretty good, I would say. Yeah, that's not bad. You know, it's got the, I mean, first series of the season or whatever is kind of arbitrary, but still, there have been a lot of first games of the season. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yep, I like that one. And unsurprisingly, do you know who is last in the majors among team pitching staffs in wins above replacement. Is it the Cincinnati Reds? It's the Cincinnati Reds at <laughs> negative 0.6. The race to below replacement is underway again in 2018. <laughs> Even Luis Castillo had kind of a disaster start, right? Yes, he did. Although maybe, so we, we were saying in the last podcast that you can start to trust the numbers when Mike Trout is leading in wins above replacement. And I would mm-hmm. say you can start to trust the numbers when the Marlins have a worse record than the Cubs, but... They split their four-game series, the Marlins and the Cubs. The Marlins beat them 6 to nothing the other day. And through one series, the Marlins' numbers are actually better than the Cubs are. Why? I don't know. It's stupid, but that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And all right. The, the last thing I wanted to mention, the Rays had their first bullpen day. So th- there are two things I enjoy about this. First of all, I like the graphics when they show who's starting for the Rays, like the Yankees on Yes Network I saw just had Jordan Montgomery versus Bullpen Day, and it showed a picture of the <laughs> the visitors' bullpen <laughs> just on the graphic. And then I think the the Rays, because where I am in New York, the Yankees' home opener is snowed out today. So yep. I'm talking about actual baseball, but it is nasty outside. So I think because of that, the Rays will have two bullpen days in their next series against the Red Sox, or at least they have two TBDs, which, by the way, the bullpen day. So <laughs> I think that's uh, that's kind of fun. Anyway, we saw the first bullpen day for the Rays, and it worked out pretty well. They didn't win the game. They lost 3-2 to two to the Red Sox. But I think just you know as a proof of concept, it worked out the way you would want this idea to work out, right? They had Andrew Kittredge start, and he went three and a third. Then they had Ryan Yarbrough come in. He went four, 
And then they finished it up the last inning with Sergio Romo and Chaz Rowe. So if they are able to do that every time, and obviously it's not going to work out that well every time, but in theory, that's the way it would work out is that you use a couple guys for, you know, three, four innings apiece, and then you maybe go matchups from there as you need to. If that happened most of the time, it probably wouldn't really wear out the entire pitching staff. So, I mean, I guess it's going to be a problem when you have a guy get blown up in his first inning or something, and then you have to get through the whole game with the bullpen. That will inevitably happen at some point. But this was kind of a demonstration of how it could work. And they held the Red Sox to three runs, and they only used four pitchers. And, you know, no one has ever heard of most of the pitchers they used, I guess, except for Romo and and Rowe. And here's why I think this is and is not a big deal. So this is not a big deal because on the Rays' bullpen day, Andrew Kittred went three and a third. And the Rays' third starter, Jake Faria, the game before, went four innings. So really not a meaningful (laughs) difference. Here's why it is a big deal. Jake Faria went four innings. (laughs) Your bullpen is going to get super taxed. Yeah, that's true. Obviously, Faria is not going to average four innings, but he might average five. This is uh this is one of the problems when you have Yovaldi is down, Honeywell is down, De Leon yeah. down. They're not going to pitch for a long time. Only Yovaldi might be able to come back this season. So I don't know what the Rays are going to do about this, but they uh the Rays had what Yarbrough had one appearance and threw four innings of relief, and mm-hmm. Yanni Chirinos had one appearance and threw four innings of relief, and so therefore the Rays have two relievers who have thrown at least as many innings as two of the Rays' starting pitchers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder what the breakdown will be for them. I mean, they haven't committed to doing this for the whole season. I think Kevin Cash just said we'll try it for four to six weeks and see how it goes, but... I mean, inevitably, they will have probably the highest percentage of team innings pitched by relievers ever, right? I would think. I mean, we're hitting records league-wide with that every year at this point, so it makes sense that some team would set that team record in 2018. I'm sure teams set that team record last year, too, and given what the Rays are doing here, I would think that they will eclipse whatever the record for that is. Strong agree. All right. Anything else? Nope. Okay, well, we've gone around the league. We've covered all of baseball. Good job by us. And we'll uh, we'll probably switch from this format to actually focusing on one or two topics in the sometime near future. But we're still in the early exuberant days of baseball. And it seems like there's a ton to talk about. So we're going to talk about it. So you can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who have recently pledged their support include Trip Von Minden, Ben Detweiler, Tim Peterson, Eddie Campbell, and Steve Kishore. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. By the way, I will link to this on the show page at Fangrass and in the Facebook group. You've got to go to banishedtothepen.com. Check out Ken Maeda's post there from April 1st. It's called Baseball Video Game Effectively Wild. Ken, who is a master of the visual arts, did several mock-up images for an old-school baseball game based on Effectively Wild. It's great. I want to play it. It was a big hit in the Facebook group, so thanks to Ken. You can keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast.fangrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system. It's been a while since our last full email show, I know, so I think we'll get to one next time. So we will be back to talk to you and answer your questions sometime very soon. Until then, enjoy the early season baseball. You got a nine to five, so I'll take the night shift. And I'll never see you again.